Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Uh, my name is Roger Hudson. And I'm Vicky Tellios, and we are here at the Society for Neuroscientists, Neuroscience 2018. This is an international conference for a whole host of neuroscientists from across the world. And we're here interviewing Peter Zambetti. Welcome, Peter. Hello. Peter, you're from the University of Washington. You're, uh, I think, officially our first international guest, uh, at least from the neuroscience area on Happy the podcast. I'm usually not considered international, so this is fun. <laughs> well, being from the States, I guess there's a huge hotbed of neuroscience research here, right? So Yeah. So what, what exactly got you into the neuroscience field to begin with? Tell us a little bit about your story. All right. So I went to undergrad at SUNY Albany in New York, because I'm originally from New Jersey. And I actually majored in psychology and criminal justice, and I was going to do forensic psychology okay. by criminal profiling. Then I ended up doing research in a neuroscience lab and completely changed and I fell in love with neuroscience. So then right after I finished undergrad I went straight into grad school into a PhD program oh, at, wow. in Gene Sock Kim's lab at the University of Washington <laughs> and started doing fear conditioning research. How exactly would you describe fear conditioning research? Yeah so fear conditioning work is based off of classical conditioning and Pavlovian conditioning. Okay. So you put a rat into a small chamber with a shock rod on the floor then you shock it a few times or you play a tone and pair that with the shock then when the animal goes back into that context or you play that tone again, then the animal freezes and that you measure that fear response. Mm -hmm. So it's used well, basically universally for fear learning and fear memories because you can do it with just three trials. It's very easy to get that fear memory out. And then from there, we kind of branched out in Gene Sock's lab in more naturalistic ways. That's very, very interesting. So it's essentially, uh, you're trying to induce this this aversive or this fear memory mm -hmm. in, in not to the shock itself, but to associative or contextual yeah. cues that are related to that. So the animal forms a memory for yeah, that. Yeah, basically then the animal's able to predict, I'm in a danger area or this is a danger cue. I need to respond in some way. Very, very cool. So, so you mentioned that you're doing more of a naturalistic approach to the fear conditioning research at, um, at your lab at University of Washington. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, so from for a while, uh, Gene Sock, I think back in 2010, he had this paper, it's, we called it a RoboGator paper. So they train these rats uh, instead of putting them into a small chamber, it's a much larger arena where they're trained to forage for pellets. And in this paper, uh, the rat encounters a RoboGator, which is um, it's a Lego robot that surges towards the rat. And then the rat runs away. And we say that's an innate fear because it doesn't have to learn to be afraid of a predator. Ah. They just are afraid of predators. Okay. So we're trying to look at the same fear system that people that you do fear conditioning are looking at, but how it was supposed to be used. So in the rat's natural setting, when they're running around, trying to have a goal-oriented behavior, which is getting pellets, uh, but then interacting with a predator at the same time. And we find it the same areas. So basolateral amygdala or amygdala is the biggest uh, one with fear centers. And if you inactivate amygdala, then they have no problem encountering the predator and getting the pellet, and they don't really care about it. So your research then focuses more so on the methods of fear conditioning? Is that what I'm gauging mm -hmm. from that? It's yeah. almost like uh, you could say like newer methods of fear newer conditioning methods. or building off of uh, fear conditioning yeah. work where we're still looking at fear and fear memories, right. but it's how the rat was built to use those fear memories. Okay. So you mentioned the amygdala, and to, to anybody who's listening that isn't specifically uh, up to date with the whole uh, different brain regions and how they relate to these types of um, uh, emotions 
traditional-based memories. The amygdala is supposedly very much involved in storing or, or at least uh, encoding these aversive or fear-based memories. Is that right? Yeah, so you can think of the amygdala as kind of the emotional center of the brain, so positive and negative um, emotions. So you see that in humans as well. Fair enough. So it's not, it's not specifically related to memory then, because you brought up that... It is important for acquisition. Uh, without it, you don't get an acquisition of fear memory, unless you could do some overtraining tasks people have shown, oh, okay. where 60 pairings, which is very it's, uh, kind of ludicrous to shock an apple 60 times. Way more um, than they need to actually yeah, learn. But with our setup, if you inactivate amygdala, then there's no fear response. The next day, you can put them in, and then they have a fear response again. Interesting. Which, yeah. So just because you mentioned that the, the I guess the naturalistic uh, fear cue mm -hmm. that you put like the uh, the animal doesn't actually need to learn. What's, yeah. What's, what's so the, we on? say they're innate fears. So there's no learning involved. And if you think about it, in a rat in the wild, this is actually from an old paper by Bob Bowles, who was also at the University of Washington for a while. A while. He says uh, when an owl attacks a rat, it doesn't hoot three times before it attacks it. It's silent and then attacks it. So rats need to have an innate defense response to right. these predators, or else they're never going to survive. Like rats don't get attacked three times and then, oh, okay, I guess I should learn to avoid an owl coming at me. Mm -hmm. It's immediate. They need to respond. And they don't really have a chance to learn uh, based on that initial exposure because if they don't yeah. avoid that initial exposure, they won't have a chance to demonstrate the memory for it. They're dead. That's yeah, fatal. exactly. And you can see that in humans too, like human startle response or that fight or flight response, it just happens. You don't think about, oh, I should be afraid. You just are afraid of something. Wow. So that must have lots of implications, I guess, for uh, how your research would generalize or translate into human, I guess, what would be the biggest uh, areas that, mm -hmm. that you're trying to uh, I think the biggest, the big two are uh, PTSD work and generalized anxiety disorder. Okay. So with PTSD, it's again, one trial learning a lot of times where it's one very traumatic event uh, and then for then on from then on there's so many triggers that can activate that PTSD and then really have uh, adverse effects for people for years after uh, and what we like to say is like with adverse events you can have one trial and then you have PTSD from that one trial but no one gets good PTSD like you don't have a good event and then you feel like get triggered for good things for the rest of your life ah. so that's why reinforcement learning usually takes multiple trials but aversive learning it's one and then you have that memory wow so the reward-based memories, they, they take a lot more uh, pairing yeah. with these Yeah, it, it, it still depends on the salient. So how motivated they are for the reward, are they starving? So then mm -hmm. that motivation goes up much higher. But the motivation to survive is always higher than motivation to eat or forage for food. Because you always have more chances to forage again, uh, but you'll never have another chance if you die. So I was thinking, do you think there's an accurate mouse model for PTSD? This is a little bit yeah. on a tangent, but I've heard that there some people have tried to use a mouse model mm -hmm. for PTSD, but I'm not too sure how relevant that model is or how well it mimics the actual PTSD, the disorder that we see in humans. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's hard, especially mm -hmm. with freezing, because you have... You definitely get acquisition, you definitely get a fear response, but that response quickly extinguishes. And in normal wild-type rats and mice, you don't get any deficits in extinction usually right. like you would get in someone with PTSD. So the goal would be to develop some paradigm where they don't extinguish and then try to see why they're not extinguishing. Clearly, you're speaking about a very ecologically valid model. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about actually 
doing this? How do you conduct your experiments, and how, why is it better than the classic ways that, that are tested with fear conditioning? Yeah, so my project specifically that I presented this year, it's all about combining classical conditioning and like an ethological relevant behavior like foraging. Mm -hmm. So in my setup, we do that foraging task in a very large arena with the rats where they're trained in a nest area that habituate to be as a safety zone. Mm -hmm. Then we train them for a few days to go out and forage for pellets, and they still consider that safe. Then on one day, a tone comes on when they're in the nest area. Then when they reach a trigger zone, pretty far out, they're shocked subcutaneously, and an owl comes down as a predator attack, basically on top of them. And the, we delivered a shock underneath the skin on their back instead of a foot shock, because that's more naturalistic, because in the wild, rats will get attacked by predators underneath their paws. So we're doing it on their back. It's still under the skin, but, but it's at least closer. Uh, and then the owl I have set up, it's on an air cylinder that kind of shoots down at them. Uh, and so they see an owl coming down over them, and at the same time they're getting hurt on their back. So it kind of provides context to the pain. Wow. That, that's, that's truly, I think, a lot more relevant to a rat's actual life style yeah. and you know, experiences than something you could produce in a normal lab environment, yeah. right? Yeah, because then we can test, because uh, we have that initial tone pairing, so that the next day we put them back in that arena, and then they forage again, and then the tone comes on that should predict that shock and that owl cue, or the owl predator. And then what we thought would happen is when they were out in the arena and the tone came on, that we would see them freeze, uh, because that's what original classical conditioning said, is that they pair the tone and shock, and then when a tone comes on, it represents a distant predator, so they freeze to try to avoid detection. Mm -hmm. But we found is the second the tone comes on, they immediately run back to their nest area. So it's an immediate avoidance. They don't try to freeze first, they run first. So that's the difference then between your paradigm and the classical yeah. conditioning paradigm. So that seems more naturalistic and that's probably what you're going for, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. yeah, and then uh, we also have two additional groups and this is where people kind of questioned my poster or a little bit agitated by my <laughs> poster, where we had one group that was just tone and shock and no owl, and another group that just had the owl and shock, but they had no tone predictor. Mm -hmm. But we tested them all with the tone, and surprisingly the owl shock animals that never had the tone all ran away from the tone as well. So they never needed that prediction, and the tone shock animals that had that predictor but they never had the predator, they didn't really run away from the tone. They almost had no fear response. So is it then that these animals have it pre-programmed into them that if they hear a loud noise or something that's indicative of something that's going to hurt them, they immediately are gonna jolt away and try and get into a safe zone? It's not exactly that. If you do a loud enough noise, like a bang, they would, uh, but this tone isn't that loud. Okay. And if I do control animals where I just play a tone, they don't run away. I see. What it seems to have happened is that the presence of the owl on that one day, one trial has now sensitized the context to any new stimuli. So, so now anything that's presented in that context is now a danger signal. So it doesn't matter if it was neutral or didn't do anything beforehand. Now they're in this danger zone yeah. and now they hear a tone, that tone means danger so they run away. Oh, so that, to fix that, I guess, would you have to move that rat to a different area? And that's something them I want to try mm -hmm. is uh, we have other arenas that are different shapes. Okay. So I do the owl task in one arena, then move them to a different task where they're still foraging, but a diff different context and play the tone and see if they still mm -hmm. would run away, even if they're foraging in a new context. 
That's interesting. Yeah. So I guess you have a reason for that, and reviewers on your your next paper probably won't get you on that. Yes. So, yeah. So that's good. This project, because yeah. it's due, is kind of going against the norm. Mm -hmm. uh, we have many controls, and we have oh, to make yeah. sure that everything is done exactly right because mm -hmm. people are going to critique it as much as they can. For sure. A lot of people sure. to get you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, people were much better than I thought they were going to be because my oh. advisor warned me that uh, he thought people would kind of be against um, this research, but everyone that does fear work thought it was a very useful paradigm mm -hmm. and they a lot of people were telling me they didn't think freezing was as indicative of fear as we originally thought and then maybe looking at more naturalistic behaviors like foraging and latency times for foraging could be the new way to kind of look at this so you're quite controversial in yeah that sense. Okay. I don't because the they're definitely afraid of the tone shot pairings right <laughs> um, but I think then when you put them you give them more choice Mm -hmm. their behavior repertoire ends up changing I see. Uh, and we now need a more reliable way of looking at fear in this kind of this, these different settings right and I also see I guess there's there's another aspect well I guess two here that I'm thinking of that, that are different from the classical fear conditioning paradigm one is you have that safe zone the nesting mm -hmm. area that they know is, is safe that they're habituated to but then also it's, it's a very large area you're saying as opposed to the typically very very small uh, area that the animals have have to move around, so maybe that would it, contribute to their ability to run away, or that they're yeah yeah yeah. So in a small chamber with a chakrad floor, it's thirty uh, centimeters cubed usually. There's not really a lot of space to no. run, so they do know. freeze. They don't really don't see escape behavior at all because they can't. Yeah. And in the wild, uh, rats usually aren't trapped inside of something and then presented with a fearful stimuli. Uh, they usually are out and doing something, and then right. something else happens. Everything's on a continuum. It's like is how we say it. What are the next steps for, for your research? I guess what, what, which year are you in in the PhD now? So right now I'm my third year. Fair I'm the very beginning of my third year. I'm planning on graduating in five years. So okay. hopefully that works out. <laughs> um, I think. Right now is publishing just the behavioral results of mm -hmm. this poster. Uh, and then for neural correlates, um, obviously amygdala, we're probably gonna look at that because a lot of um, sensory and auditory projections find it kind of coexist in the amygdala. Mm -hmm. So you would assume that tone fear response might be originating from amygdala, but they never paired the tone with the fearful stimulus to begin with. So we kind of want to see what's going on in the brain. Mm -hmm. Like why are they, why is this fear response happening from the tone? Awesome. So you've done a lot of work so far. It seems very interesting. Um, have you gone around, around the conference and sort of picked up any different sort of methodologies that you can incorporate within your own research? Or have you even seen anything that you find super cool so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. talking just with one uh, professor, mm -hmm. he gave me a very good idea about inhibiting a certain brain infralimbic prefrontal cortex, because okay. uh, that sends its own inhibit inhibition projections to amygdala. And he okay. uh, gave me some really good ideas about how that might be interacting with the fear and no fear responses we're seeing. Uh, so that's something I'm definitely gonna bring back with me and hopefully implement quickly. Uh, another poster I saw that I really liked, it's all about, it was like an empathy poster. They had this paradigm where one rat was dumped in water and another rat was next to it and had to pull on a chain to rescue its friend, kind oh. of. Uh, and it was just a very cool behavioral paradigm and they did a lot of controls where they showed it just, wasn't just reward of seeing the other rat like interacting with it, because even when they had three chambers and they rescued the rat and the rat went to a completely different area, its cage mate would still rescue it every time with a very quick latency. 
I never thought that rats or even mice could exhibit empathy. I've never. It's seen still controversial that. because you could also. I'm sure they're emitting ultrasonic vocalizations, right. so you could almost look at it as negative reinforcement because no. you're that one rat is getting the ultrasonic vocalizations taken away I when see. it rescues the other one. So there's a lot of little things you could do, but I don't think mice actually these empathy experiments work with mice. I think they only work with, with rats. <laughs> yeah. I agree with that. Mice are a little bit more ruthless. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and you're, uh, you've blown my mind. I know that. Yeah. So thank Mine you. as well. Do you have any ways that, see if any listeners want to get in contact with you or learn more about your research that they can potentially hook up with you at all? Yeah, so we have a lab website. If you just Google University of Washington Kim Lab, that will come up, and all the contact information is there. The lab also just had a publication by my advisor, Gene Sock. It's a review all about ethobehavioral research that he does and other people do. And it's called uh, Fear Paradigms, The Times They Are Changing. Uh, yeah. And it's part of a whole series of uh, articles about those similar things. Are, are so, they all Bob Dylan themed titles No, well, well? he's <laughs> just a big Bob Dylan fan, so he <laughs> wanted to make awesome. sure he put that joke in the title. And it's an easy title to remember because of that. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, Peter Zambetti from University of Washington. Have a wonderful day, my friend. Yep. Thank, Thank you, you for much. having me. Wonderful day and wonderful time at the conference. Yes, yeah. enjoy the rest of your time. Take care. Welcome back to GradCast on Tour. Our next guest is Jamal Williams. Welcome, Jamal. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from? Yeah, so I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. It was the last place I moved from before I moved to New Jersey to go to grad school. But my mom was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot before we moved to Memphis. So okay. Around the world. <laughs> Growing up, yeah. And you're a PhD student? Yeah. In what program? Princeton Neuroscience Program. Amazing. And yeah. is this your first time at SFN? No. no. You've been here before? Yeah. This um, is, awesome. That was probably my third time. Oh, wow. Time. I don't even know at this point. Lost kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Obviously, you have a good time here if you're back again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, it's cool. And has this been your favorite SFN experience? I think so, actually. Yeah? Yeah, because I finally got to a point in my research that I, like, I'm really excited to share what I do, and so... You know, and also just in San Diego. Yeah, so like those wrong. two things combined. And also catching up with all the people that I've met over the years. So So I'm super excited to hear about your research because I had walked by your poster on Monday, but it was so crowded. There was like twenty people around and I didn't even get a chance to actually come and speak with you. So do you wanna tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, yeah. So I mean I work uh, in Ken Norman's lab at Princeton, and it's an episodic memory lab uh, okay, for cool. the most part, but we've been branching out recently to natural stimuli and whatnot, working with Ori Hassan as well, and so I'm really interested in music, and you know, I basically wanted to apply music to a lot of the research that they'd already been doing on event segmentation, episodic memory. So basically, uh, my work comes from a line of research looking at how the brain segments information over long time scales or how it represents information over long time scales and how it also segments that information so like watching like movies and reading stories your brain notices when there's like a scene change or some like important change in the narrative and there's also like some brain regions that represent those long chunks over long periods of time and they're typically not like sensory areas and so like you find these like these regions that are invariant to the low level stimuli that seem to represent the meaning of whatever it is they're watching or listening to. So I had the suspicion that, like music, although the meaning is a little more ambiguous in music, it still has a sort of strong structure that people have to represent sections of a song in order to know one section from another. The chorus, the from, chorus from the verse, yep. exactly. Yep. So, uh, like I said, although the 
characterizing the meaning of it is a little different than with like movies or something. I figure that similar brain regions are involved in representing those sections and also finding boundaries between those sections. So I basically set up a study where I have people like listen to music for like three days, and then I uh, on the last day I like scan them twice, they listen to like sixteen songs twice, and then I use their data to just like look for brain areas that represented the longer sections of the music by uh, employing this hidden Markov model okay. to segment the time series, basically. That's super, super interesting. Right? Yeah, you mentioned scanning. Is this through some sort of MRI? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or... So this is just fMRI. Fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Cool, cool. And what type of music are you looking at? Uh, so in this study, I used classical and jazz music. Okay. Hmm. So like I said, it has 16 songs, and I use eight classical songs and eight jazz songs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I know so, like a lot of music studies typically do look at classical versus jazz. Yeah, so yeah. So the ones that I typically co- encounter are like looking at classical, and so I really wanted to push more for the jazz, for, yeah. like, be able to compare the two. But that's that wasn't like the main research question. That was just sort of like useful for fitting the HMM because we wanted to be able to find like stable patterns of activity, be, like be able to know when there was like a move from one state to another state. And so having like different genres makes it a little easier for it to find you know, differences in brain activity that relate to the music. Wow. Yeah. So what, I guess, would, would be the, the primary prediction uh, coming out from, from your research? What, what would you guess the findings would be? I don't want to, if, if it's still not published oh, yet, I don't want to see No, so, um, yeah, one thing that I should add is, like, to get to the prediction is, like, we have people, uh, a separate group of subjects that aren't being scanned, listen to the songs, okay. and we just ask them, like, hey, could you mark when a meaningful change happens in the song? And so, like, when we do that, we get annotations for the songs. Like, we get boundaries locations, but we also get, like, the number of boundaries that people think exist in the song. Sure. So I, like, find a sort of consensus boundary for each song, and then I run this, this searchlight across the whole brain looking for these brain areas that where the HMM boundaries best match with the human annotations. And so I think one of the cool things about it is that, like, the people that were asked to annotate it, they weren't being scanned, and the people that were being scanned weren't asked to do anything. Right. But nonetheless, uh, they still have a match in between, like, their where they think boundaries occurred in the wow. songs. Yeah, and so the brain regions that I was looking for, hoping that would come up, were, like, medial prefrontal cortex and posterior parietal cortex, but also... Uh, one region that I didn't expect to come up in this, because I mentioned earlier, my research comes from a line of research where sensory regions are kind of like not important for these like invariant representations. We, for me, I actually get auditory cortex, huh. um, a sensory region, in addition to these higher order brain regions. And so, what it looks like is that auditory cortex, despite the fact that it's a sensory region, is involved in higher level musical processing. Mm-hmm. And it might have to do with the fact that like music is very different from, you know, movies and stories because with a movie you can talk about a story in words, like on a you know, in a book. Uh, and people have done this and shown that like by telling the same story through different modalities that, you know, these higher order regions care about the meaning or the situation and sensory regions like visual cortex and auditory cortex get washed out. But for us, like music, there's no point where music actually becomes detached from itself. You know what I mean? So the whole time you're listening to a song, it was referring back to like every few seconds that something just happened. And so it's hard to say that there's an invariant representation or some like meaning that's detached from the music itself. And so that might be why we're seeing sensory regions that are involved in segmenting the music, but also, fortunately, these higher order regions too that are involved with. Uh, uh, stimuli that you can actually extract the more like invariant meaning from. Yeah. 
So it's very difficult to parse away uh, the different processes, I guess, to tease apart what the, the contributions of these different regions would be. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, it's, it's a puzzle for sure. <laughs> but, you know, there's like a lot of research out on like what each of these regions are doing separately. And so like, first off, trying to make a story out of what we already know is something I'm going to be doing, but then also like digging into like what each region is actually representing. So I already have a suspicion that auditory cortex is like representing the very low level features of the music, like, you know, timbre and pitch and amplitude and things like that. But it, so it's not surprising that the model can find boundaries like that are found by human annotators because it can show, like, the auditory cortex has representations where each section is different from each other, and it's pretty clear. Okay. But these higher-order regions, I'm not sure, but it seems unlikely that they're, like, representing these low-level features and that they might be, like, extracting some higher-level summary from the lower-level features of the music. Mm-hmm. Or it could be that the higher-order regions are just getting information from the sensory regions when a change happens and that the higher-order areas aren't representing anything at all. But I kind of, I feel like the, the former is more likely the case based on some stuff that I've, I've looked at. So you had mentioned um, something about meaningful change. So mm-hmm. you had these individuals determine when in a song this was. Yeah. So can you just explain a little bit about what that is? Right, yeah, so when I told people that, like, Mark, when they thought meaningful changes happened in the song, I was very ambiguous because that's, in other event segmentation studies, you're, like, generally pretty vague about what you mean by meaningful or however they feel exactly exactly but you know in some songs like the change between one section and another section is pretty clear right if it's like two different movements in a classical piece yeah all the all the songs are instrumental by the way okay Um, Okay. but like when a solo saxophone solo starts for example like most people are going to say yes that's a change but then you know for some song for other songs where they're like more unclear changes between sections. Subtle. Yeah, changes. subtle changes. You'll just see people marking all over the place. Oh, really? I still get the like sort of 90, 90th percentile for those as well, but you know, it's, it's like, I can't say it's, com- it's exactly comparable to the songs where it's like clear, like there's only four boundaries or something like that. So, so would, would there be any benefit um, to potentially taking a gradient of songs where, where yeah, eventually you yeah, get, yeah. right? So now that I've seen what the data looks like, I've actually been thinking about running some follow-up experiments where we can, like, vary the amount of musical entropy or something like that. <laughs> entropy. Yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting word. Somebody, somebody told me about this the other day. Yeah, <laughs> you can actually measure, like, musical entropy. I don't know if that explicitly relates to, like, the number of boundaries you find in the song, but it, it might have some correlation with that. But nonetheless, yeah, I'd like to like take some songs where it's clear that this section is very different from this section and then vary that down into like something that's changing more gradually over time. I think that these regions might come into play more seriously for those more definitive songs than the more ambiguous ones. And like the ones that are like harder to parse might rely more on pure sensory regions like auditory cortex. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what is your population that you're looking at? So my population is just Princeton students and Princeton locals. So I just went through like the SONA systems. So under, undergrads or? Undergrads, grad students, okay. locals. I'm guessing for the students there's some sort of class credit. Yeah, them and- yeah, yeah, yeah. So some students, uh, there's two SONA pools, one for paid and one for credit. And I got people from both just because I was like anxious to get <laughs> <laughs> And so what was your final sample size for this? 25. Okay. 25 okay. Subjects, yeah. And uh, so how did it go presenting your research at, on Monday? It went way better than I expected. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of expected it to go well because, like, a lot of people are interested in the work that my advisor does. But, you know, 
I don't try to keep my hopes low. <laughs> <laughs> Just so, like, if I'm sitting there, like, lonely, that, you know, I like, already prepared for it. But yeah. <laughs> uh, I, got, I got a lot of people that came, and I got a lot of questions, and a lot of people told me that there was a large crowd around me, but I couldn't really see because I was just focused on, like, the few people in front of me. Mostly. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, like, based on what other people said and from, like, the feedback I got. Yeah, like so. I said, I saw a bunch of people standing around asking you questions, and it was actually, like, there's too many people that could fit around your poster. So I was like, well, I'll just talk to yeah. them later. <laughs> it's, it's clear that your work's really intriguing and, like, understanding, you know, the neural mechanisms for how music is processed in these different boundary points. But is there a, a potential... To go forward clinically, mm. how, how would this potentially help individuals in, in like a meaningful way? Um, you know, one of the things that I've considered in terms of like clinical stuff is characterizing how the stuff is processed in quote unquote normal brains, <laughs> like might help to see if there a person has a deficit with sort of segmentation and you know a task like this. I mean, people do this I think already with movies and, and stories and things like that uh-huh. and tests like things like comprehension. But for something like music where it sort of really seems like it's relying on the brain's ability to make meaning out of nothing, it might be useful to like see if people might have trouble extracting meaning from such an ambiguous stimulus and like if this if these regions don't come online, like does it also interfere with their ability to like have useful memory cues with this with this music so like sure. other things that i've been doing i have another line of research where we like do contextual reinstatement stuff with music and pair items with music and then ha- play the music back at the end and have people recall stuff oh that's cool yeah and so we've been able to like bias people's recall you know, wow. towards one half of a list versus another and you can imagine something like that being more relevant to like the clinical like if these cues don't help you recall stuff it's either because you aren't listening which is uh-huh. as well or that like these regions aren't being recruited in a normal way right and maybe it's like could be diagnostic in that way right but i mean personally i'm genuinely more interested in just the basic questions about mm-hmm. how music is processed in the brain i'm mm-hmm. very obsessed with music just as <laughs> a thing in and of itself but yeah hopefully in the future i can like branch out to the clinical world and that's awesome. Yeah. So just as we're finishing up, um, if our listeners wanted to get a hold of you or learn more about what you're doing, is there somewhere that they could reach you? Yeah, yeah. So my email address, if anyone wants to get in touch and ask questions, is jamalw at princeton.edu. Great. Thank you Fantastic. so much. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.